invite you to turn with me to Psalm 121. Psalms 120 through 134 are known as Psalms of Ascents. They're believed to be recited or sung either as pilgrims ascended the temple stairs to offer their sacrifices or, and more likely, recited and sung as pilgrims journeyed from their home to Mount Zion three times a year for the three big religious festivals. These pilgrimages became apt metaphors and pictures of the whole Christian life. Every Christian is on his or her way to a better city, the heavenly Mount Zion or the New Jerusalem. And our pilgrimages are anything but a walk in the park, as we just heard. There are stretches that are nice, gradual, downhill slopes where the journey could not be easier, more pleasant and joyful Then there are stretches that we gain several feet in altitude in a very short distance, where the path is pitched and every few steps is gained by blood. We stop, we catch our breath, and switchback after switchback takes us too close to danger. On this journey, we meet and make wonderful friends and companions that encourage us. Bring out the best in us. Double our joys because they share our convictions. And have our sorrows because they share our load. But we also meet up with others who who are going the very opposite direction and would discourage us from going to Mount Zion altogether. They question our sanity. They ridicule our code of ethics. They seek to derail us, get us off the king's highway, and waylay us at Vanity Fair. All this, not even to mention the unseen forces of Apollyon and his foul fiends firing deadly arrows at our faith. They not only attempt to hinder us, but to prevent us from making it to our eternal destiny altogether, if it were possible. It is far from a promenade in the park. Granted, there are long periods that seem mundane, but all in all, it is an adventurous, even dangerous, and sometimes thrilling journey. And the promise I want most to hear at the beginning of a new year and several times during this year, as I flee the city of destruction with you and travel to the celestial city, is the sure and certain hope that I am going to make it after all. I want the Lord Jesus to front me and grab me by the shoulders and look me in the eyes and say, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. I guarantee it. With my blood, I guarantee it. And that's what Psalm 121 is for us. This psalm is major encouragement to the sojourner. You're going to make it, pilgrim. Nothing, nothing can keep you from your journey's happy end. And you will arrive right on schedule. And it's not because of your strength and obedience and faith and vigilance and dogged determination and perseverance. That's taught elsewhere. Not in Psalm 121. 
It is because of your keeper, the one who watches over you, your guardian. And so as I read Psalm 121, I want you to notice with me how passive we are and how active our guardian is on our behalf. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Would you pray with me, please? Father, there is much encouragement in this psalm, and I pray that you would bring it home fresh tonight. May none of us leave here without a spring in our walk of faith as we begin the new year soon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The word guard or guardian appears six times in Hebrew as either a noun or a verb. The NIV translates it, watch over. The ESV translates it, to keep. This psalm is about Israel's guardian. And each of the four couplets tells us something new about him. First of all, the first couplet, he is all-powerful. Secondly, he's tireless, ever vigilant. Thirdly, he's nearby at all times to protect. And finally, to protect us from all harm. Let's look at these couplets as they appear in order. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We're not entirely certain why the psalmist lifts his eyes to the hills in the first place. It may be that he's considering fleeing to them to take refuge from danger, as David has in his life. Or it may be that he sees danger in them. He may have become aware that there are marauders stalking his caravan. No matter. His answer is what concerns us most. His help comes from the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. The first of five times the covenant name for God is used. The Lord, the one who singled out Israel from all the peoples and nations of the whole wide world to favor them. To impart revelation to them. To make a treasure out of them. To delight them with Himself. To rescue them. And to save the world through them. The God of the covenant who makes promises and keeps every one of them is their help and guardian. But He's more. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And that's Bible speak for everything that is. In the sky, on earth, in the seas, seen and unseen, he's made it all. 
And he made it out of nothing. There's nothing too difficult for him. He created sun, moon, and stars. Isaiah looked up at the star-filled sky one black night and worshipped. He couldn't do anything else. Was so inspired to say, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Consider, the maker of heaven and earth did not enter into a covenant of love with stars. And yet he calls them all by name and has upheld them from the beginning of time. Surely he will not do any less for us who alone have been made in his image. Who alone he has entered into a covenant of love with who alone He has made vice-regents of the universe. This is where the psalmist begins in this first couplet. The all-powerful God who made heaven and earth, with whom nothing is impossible, the God who entered into a covenant of love with me and knows me by name, is the one who guards me and you. And so as we embark on this new year, let's remember this good news. We will never encounter a mountain on our path that our guardian will not tunnel through or enable us to tunnel through. We will never encounter a mountain on our path that our guardian will not carry us over or strengthen us to climb over. There will never be a mountain in our path that he cannot make level or cast into the sea. No matter what the name of the mountain is, be it unemployment, major surgery, or loss of a loved one. The all-powerful God, the God of the impossible, is our helping guardian. That's where the first couplet takes us. He's all-powerful. Secondly, He's tireless. Verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Have you noticed that sometimes the path of obedience takes us on to treacherous terrain? Sometimes it seems that we must travel to Mount Zion Uh, that as we travel to Mount Zion, our left arm and shoulder scrape up against sheer rock wall on one side. And inches to the right is a precipice. And so we scoot one foot out and catch the other one up so carefully. We hear the stones we kick up fall endlessly down the echo so far away. It immobilizes. Do I want to go forward or not? And yet, that is where the path of obedience and blessing lies, forward, onward. So we shuffle ahead with sweaty palms, pounding heart, and fervent prayers. Because we don't want to misstep here. 
Lord, should I choose this career path or that one? This college or that one? Should I keep my present job or apply for another? Should I accept this offer or not? Lord, take note of where I am. I don't want a misstep. You know I've tried to do the right thing, even when it hurts. And this is where the path has led me. Give me hinds feet, Lord. Don't take your eyes off me. Don't go to sleep on me now. Not here. Not now. As creatures, we just cannot comprehend a being that does not sleep, does not need to sleep, because you and I sleep approximately one-third of our life. If we live to be 75 years of age, we'll have slept about 25 of those years, only awake for 50 of those years. We require rest and sleep to be recharged. But God does not. God does not know what it means to be exhausted and depleted, tired. I want you to think back to the time when you were the most tired, most exhausted. Remember what it felt like? A couple of you are nodding. One summer day in the early 80s, I did something very foolish. When I think of David's psalm, Uh, 25, remember not the sins of my youth. This experience is on my list. I drove nonstop from Minneapolis to upstate New York, approximately 1,100 miles, stopping only to refuel and to use the restroom. I didn't intend to drive all that distance without stopping. It just just sort of happened. And, And this is how it happened. I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and me and a few friends were just returning from Fort Collins, Colorado, for a staff training. Landed in Minneapolis, drove into Minneapolis. It was about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I was on vacation, and tomorrow morning I'm loading up my car and driving to New York to be with my family. I was excited. Had a great conference, was all pumped up, good messages, Adrenaline was flowing. I just wanted to get going. And I reasoned that if I left now at 4 o'clock, I'd be getting into Chicago about midnight. I'd been hung up in Chicago traffic rush hour many times on my trip from New York to Minneapolis in the 10 years I lived there. So I was looking forward to experimenting. What kind of traffic in Chicago at midnight? Well, my gamble worked. I, got, I pulled into Chicago around midnight. Hardly anybody was there. The plan was to look for a motel almost immediately after getting there. But I wasn't tired. Thanks to the adrenaline glands and Mountain Dew, I kept on going. <laughs> and then I saw a sign for Cleveland, Ohio, about 180 miles away. And I'm thinking, 180 miles, 180 miles. That's about three hours of driving. I can do Cleveland. I'll do Cleveland. Surely I'll be tired by Cleveland. And so I get to Cleveland around three or so in the morning. And I pull off and I start looking for the motels I can afford. Motel 6, Red Roof Inn, no vacancy. You've got to be kidding me. What do you mean no vacancy? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Who's pulling over to look for a place to stay at 3 o'clock in the morning? So I keep going. The next exit, same thing, no vacancy. 
get back in my car, start driving, not a plan. And then I see a sign that says Pennsylvania border, just about an hour away. Huh, Pennsylvania, right next to New York. How about that? And as I recall, my journey through Pennsylvania is only about an hour. So once I cross into the New York border, I've got three hours to my hometown. Three plus one plus one, five hours of driving. I'm going to do this. And so I go. I made it to Buffalo. And just on the other side of Buffalo, the mother of all fights began. I did everything I knew to stay awake. You've done it too. You rolled your windows down, let the fresh air in. You stick your head out the window from time. You slap your face red. You grab into your cooler. You take the ice cubes. You run them all over your face and down your shirt. You blast the radio. You sing to the top of your lungs. And still your head nods and jerks. And you look foolish. Somehow, between 7 and 8 in the morning, my Ford Fiesta pulls into 57 New Hartford Street, Wolcott, New York. I don't know how we got there. My parents were both at work. I dragged myself upstairs. I collapsed in my bed, exhausted, depleted. I had nothing left, and my body was demanding sleep. Do you remember that feeling? The one who watches over us never tires, never slumbers, never sleeps, never yawns. He's been pulling all-nighters from eternity past, and he is just as fresh and alert and awake and vigilant as he was from the beginning, well before Genesis chapter 1. He is the inexhaustible source and fountainhead of all life and energy. He's staying awake and vigilant so you and I can get some sleep. To be recharged. And when we are recharging... We are very vulnerable. What if someone sneaks up on us? Like David's men did to, the, to Saul. Completely incapacitated. But our God is wide awake, ever vigilant, keeping guard over us. You're going to make it, pilgrim. You're going to make it to your journey's end because he's all-powerful and tireless. But... What comfort is it if he is all-powerful and tireless, but is 16 time zones away? The next couplet assures us that he is not. Verses 5 and 6. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. He's at our right hand. That's an expression of proximity. He's nearby. 
The sun and moon are metaphors for all that distresses and threatens and is a favorite Hebrew way of expressing totality, naming a pair of opposites to include everything between. And so the sense is our God is nearby at all times when you are awake and even when you sleep to protect. Constant, infallible Protection is a recurring theme in the Psalms of Ascents. You've heard these verses before. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people, both now and forevermore. Psalm 125, verse 2. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. Psalm 127. He's the unfailing watchman standing guard over our lives. Nothing can get past him by day or by night. Think of it. Not even the best trained bodyguards, the best trained secret service agents can anticipate all the approaches of danger. Shortly before 2.30 in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time on March 30th, 1981, just 69 days into his presidency, Ronald Reagan walked out of the Washington Hilton Hotel. And John Hinckley Jr. emerged from the crowd of admirers and fired six shots in just three seconds. The first bullet hit White House Press Secretary James Brady in the head. The second hit District of Columbia police officer Thomas Delahanty in the back. The third overshot the president and hit the window of a building across the street. The fourth hit Secret Service agent Timothy McCarthy in the abdomen. The fifth hit the bulletproof glass of the window on the open side door of the president's limousine. The sixth and final bullet ricocheted off the side of the limousine and hit the president under his left arm. And all of that, those four wounded men, in just three lightning speed seconds. Almost instantly, the Secret Service wrestled Hinckley to the ground, shoved the president into the limousine, and whisked him away. First, there was no realization that Reagan was even hurt. But then... Secret Service agent Jerry Parr checked him for wounds and Reagan coughed up bright, frothy blood. His lung had been punctured. Parr ordered the motorcade to divert to nearby George Washington University Hospital. Upon arriving, Reagan wiped the blood from his face, exited the limousine, and walked unassisted into the emergency room where he complained of difficulty breathing and finally collapsed. And nobody, nobody faulted the Secret Service agents assigned to President Reagan. Their superior did not gather them in some room and ream them out. What were you doing? What were you thinking? Didn't you see this coming? Didn't you have him hemmed in behind and before? You better start looking for new work because you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, and you're fired. No. These men did what they were trained to do. 
They heard the shots and threw themselves between Hinckley and the president. And they saved his life and the other three gentlemen as well. The best trained bodyguards, our sophisticated, affluent nation can produce simply cannot and never will be able to anticipate all the approaches of danger. They are finite humans doing the best they can. But the guardian of Israel, who is at your right hand, who has you surrounded, who doesn't get weekends off, and doesn't go home at night, stands guard over you even while you sleep, nothing gets past him. Nothing. You cannot be better protected than you are. You cannot be more safe and secure, whether you're in the war zone in the Middle East, or whether you're driving home in slippery rush hour traffic, or whether you're pushing the stroller in your neighborhood. Nothing, Christian, Christiana, can keep you from Mount Zion. And now on to our final couplet. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. Maybe when you read that, you're thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Keep me from all harm? Really? Because it doesn't feel like it. I wish the verse read, The Lord will keep me from all pain. Or from all misery. Or from all hurt. Or loss. But it doesn't. In fact, it's usually in the seasons of pain, misery, hurt, and loss that we find ourselves growing in our dependence upon the Lord, which, of course is what he's after. So in what sense does the Lord keep us from all harm? Taking the Bible's teaching as a whole, I would simply define harm as everything designed to destroy your soul. Everything designed to separate us from God's love. Nothing gets past the Lord and to us that is not divinely intended to bring about Christian maturity. God-dependence, growth in faith, hope, and love, holiness. If it gets through, if it hurts, it's for that purpose. There are a great many things in the Christian's life that hurt, but cannot destroy the soul and separate us from God's love. The Apostle Paul gives us a litany of those at the end of Romans chapter 8. Neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we stop and think about these four couplets and add them together, what does it mean? Except that you and I, really, we're indestructible. We're invincible. That's how I understand it. 
with the Lord as our guardian, that is definitely what we are. Neither death nor life nor anything that happens in between. Not even Ravensbrook. Listen to how Corey Tenboom's all-powerful, tireless, nearby-at-all-times guardian protected her and her sister Betsy in the woman's extermination camp. The train journey continued for four days, taking the sisters into Germany and Ravensbrück. This woman's extermination camp was notorious even in Holland. Corey managed to hide her most precious possessions, the Bible, vitamins, and a jumper, when they were ordered to change into prison uniform. Every other woman entering the barracks was searched, but not Corey. Hmm, how about that? During the hours that the prisoners were in the barracks, Corey and Betsy's little Bible became the center of their lives. And throughout their time in the camp, Betsy insisted to Corey that they must be grateful for all things, even the flea-infested barracks. The sisters were assigned to hard labor, living on extremely meager rations. In the evenings, Corey and Betsy would hold a little worship service in the barracks. Their barracks was the only barracks with no supervision. And they discovered why when Betsy was moved to knitting detail due to ill health. The guards refused to enter the dormitory because of the fleas. How about that? Meanwhile, Corey's little vitamin bottle seemed to have become bottomless. Betsy and many of the weakest prisoners received a dose from it every day, and yet still it didn't empty. One day, a friend who worked in the hospital managed to steal some vitamins for them. And that night, that very night, Corey's old vitamin bottle was empty. What about that? Shortly after this, Corey was ordered to attend a medical inspection to see if she could qualify for munitions work, where living conditions and food were supposed to be better than in the camps. But she deliberately misread the eye test in order to stay with Betsy. Therefore, she, w- she was sent back to work in the camp and found that she was assigned to knitting detail alongside her sister. As time went on, Betsy became more sick, but she continued to minister to those around her. She was a godly woman. I hope you get a chance to read that book again soon. One morning, Betsy was unable to move from their bunk. Corey begged for her to be sent to the hospital but was told that all prisoners must attend roll call. After roll call, Corey found that the line for the hospital was too long for Betsy to stand in, especially since it was so cold, so they returned to the barracks. The next morning, as Corey and a friend prepared again to carry Betsy out for roll call, the guard ordered them to leave her in bed. When they returned for work, they found the guard in the dormitory braving the fleas and arranging Betsy's transfer to the hospital. As Betsy left for the hospital, she told Corey that she believed that they would both be out of the camp by New Year. And they must then tell people that it was possible to survive anything. At lunchtime that day, Corey was allowed to visit the hospital to see Betsy. But in the evening, she could not obtain permission to return. And so just went and peered through the window near Betsy's bed. She saw that Betsy was dead. Corey could not bear to enter the hospital to be told the news. Later, her friend, 
who worked at the hospital, found her wandering aimlessly through the camp and tried to get Corey to go with her. Corey told her that she knew of Betsy's death, but her friend insisted and took her to see Betsy, where she was laid with the other dead prisoners. Betsy looked as she had in her youth. All the lines of hunger and care were gone. And three days after Betsy's death, Corey heard her name read out over the loudspeaker, and she was told to stand to one side. She was the only one singled out at this roll call, and she was given no explanation for it. We would learn later on that that was a mistake. Her name was not supposed to have been read over the loudspeaker, but it was. The guard led her away for a medical test to determine whether or not she was fit for release. She was sent to the camp hospital to recover from swelling in her legs before she could be released. Corey was not given any explanation for her release. When Corey arrived in Berlin on New Year's Day, 1945, she realized the truth of Betsy's prophecy. Both sisters had been freed. Betsy died in December of 1944. Corey would live 38 more years, publish seven books, and die at the ripe old age of 91. Betsy and Corey made it to the celestial city. And through the many dangers, toils, and snares, their guardian made them invincible. <clears throat> they made it at long last, not a day early, not a day late, not together, but right on schedule. And so will you, beloved. So will you, and so will I. We are invincible. Let us move on into the year 2008, believing that. Amen.